Hey, it's Diana and um, not Susanna today, your favorite global health scientist, Singular. Um, and you're listening to Global Caveat. Today, Susanna won't be able to join us because of something that came up last minute, but I'm super excited to introduce a very, very special guest that we have on today. And I'm glad that this is the first time that I'm doing this alone because our guest will make me feel so much better about doing it because she was our first guest ever when we first started this podcast. And it's so exciting to be able to have her join us again. And, you know, it's been almost two years since that we've been doing this. So without any further delay, our guest today is Dr. Tracy Carson. Tracy is a very recent graduate of the PhD program in epidemiology at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and currently is on the postdoc market. Her dissertation research focused on risk factors for disordered eating and low energy availability in collegiate female runners, as well as the physiological and psychological consequences of disordered eating and low energy availability in this population of athletes. She is particularly interested in eating disorders and mental health prevention at the environmental and structural level, which she plans to explore more in her postdoc work. So welcome, Dr. Tracy Carson. It's so exciting to call you doctor. <laughs> wow. Welcome, to you. welcome back. Thank you. I can't believe it's been two years when you said that. I feel like I just I did know. that. I'm back. Yeah. I'm back. Thank you for having yeah. me. Um, yeah, a lot has changed since that that last episode I was on. So um, it's really exciting to kind of do a, a catch up update. Yeah. Um, last time we talked, I remember the big thing takeaway, like all I really remember is the, the athlete triad, female athlete triad, something. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the one thing I really remember from that. Um, but before we get into all of that, how how's life been being a newly graduated, no longer student, like for once not being a student anymore? Like, how's that going? Yeah, it's, I mean, for everybody, right? This is a really unusual time um, during yeah. COVID. Never imagined I would defend a dissertation in epidemiology during a global pandemic. Like mm. that is like an absurd statement to say out loud, but I'm really happy that, I mean, you know, the pro of the pandemic, there are not very many, but I had a lot of dedicated time to work and um, was able to get my dissertation done a little bit early. So I, I defended on November 12th. I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my kind of final day of my my PhD work. And then in the meantime, have been working on edits, trying to get those dissertation papers out and published. So yeah, I mean, right, COVID's very strange. I live here in Ann Arbor with my dog. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very isolating time um, as like a young, newly fresh PhD, kind of like excited about the next steps. But COVID has made everything a little bit um, more interesting, I will say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, overall things have been good, and I'm I'm really excited to be done with with school. Um, having been in school since I was three years old until now, um, that's that's so long. A long time. Yeah, I'm 27. So yeah, it's really the first time I'm transitioning out of the student role, and and kind of hopefully very soon we'll be transitioning into. A postdoc role which is kind of still that like trainee status but I s might still feel like I'm kind of in that very much like learning environment but I'm very excited to kind of transition up and up and start my career and yeah it's mm -hmm. very strange not to be a student though yeah I can imagine I 
I had that feeling, I don't even know anymore, two years ago, also like right before the pandemic. And then to be in the market as like a, hi, I'm an epidemiologist without a job and it's the pandemic, someone please hire me. <laughs> like it was a strange, it was a strange time, but it was at the very beginning, which I feel like is a very different landscape from a year in, holy crap, the whole year in. I know, I can't Yeah, believe. yeah. Oh, it's crazy. But besides, you know, I heard that you said you got a dog. So do you want to talk about your dog? <laughs> I would love to do any opportunity to talk about Lucy. I will talk about her. So I, I rescued Lucy in about March. So very shortly after kind of lockdown really started last year. Mm -hmm. um, I started off fostering her. She has a very sad story. She had been through lots of foster homes. She is very anxious little dog. It doesn't like men very much. So mm -hmm. um, it worked out well that she landed with me. Um, and then I decided to adopt her. And she's truly like the best thing that's happened to me in the past year. Um, living alone here and having her has been such a nice, she's like my little therapy animal. Truly, mm -hmm. she's amazing. But that's been really fun. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've gotten, I got, a little bit more of getting to see Lucy because she would sometimes be in the background in the yoga classes you did that I would yeah. join. <laughs> so yeah. she was just like in the background, like not impressed by anybody doing yoga. But yeah, I mean, she she was very prominent there. And these days, like 80%, if you could hear her, that's her. 80% of my Instagram stories are just of her. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's, if Susanna was here, she'd also tell you that her new fur baby Cora is also pretty much 80% of her Instagram stories. <laughs> so, I yeah. that Cora is a beautiful little creature. <laughs> so. <Yeah. laughs> um, so I guess let's focus on the other things that you mentioned, which is about being a postgrad and postdoc and job search and all of this stuff and trying to enter the world as a public health researcher during the pandemic. Um, how is, how's that going? Yeah, that's. Well, it's, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like I know it's not a good question, but it is what it is. No, that's the million dollar question. Um, it's been really interesting in the past, you know, eight ish months now. I believe um, people now know what an epidemiologist is, which there are some like great aspects to that. I think you know, a couple of years ago, people would you know ask me what epidemiology was when I said that's what I was studying, and now people really seem to understand what what um, this field is all about. Um, I do now, of course, have to always clarify to people, like I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist, so I don't know, you know, more about COVID than maybe like the average public health researcher. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not an infectious disease researcher. Um, and so that's been an interesting kind of, you know, um, those conversations navigating that. Um, it's like I study social and clinical epidemiology, um, mm -hmm. do not have really any training in the infectious disease side of things. But yeah, so this is a very hard time to find jobs and transition into the world. I think there's been a lot of like stress and anxiety I've experienced around transitioning out of kind of what has been very comfortable for me, which is Ann Arbor and my mm -hmm. status as a grad student and looking kind of towards those next steps during a time like this where I'll be moving somewhere brand new where maybe I won't know very many people during a pandemic where most things are shut down and socializing mm -hmm. is, you know not really something that's um 
available to us right now. So mm-hmm. yeah, all those things are make that question of like, what are you doing next? A little bit more challenging and a little bit more daunting, but um the last week or so I've like started to have a really good feeling about some potential opportunities I hope will come through. And yeah, so I'm hoping that very soon I'll, I'll know what that next step is and where I'll be kind of moving and starting fresh this summer. Mm -hmm. And are you're looking to stay in the same field and this doing similar type of work as you did for your uh, dissertation and research, right? The eating disorders and mental health. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I am definitely still interested in staying in my dissertation area, which was disordered eating in athletes. And I would like to stick with athlete-related research as much as I can, because that's really like my like passion. And that's really what got me, got me kind of interested in even doing a PhD is being able to study female athlete health and how that, um, how disordered eating in the athlete population um, affects female health and um, Mm -hmm. both physiologically and psychologically. So I would, there's so much more I want to explore in that area. Um, and really would also like to move a bit more into like translational research and implementation work, um, Mm -hmm. having done qualitative and quantitative work and wanting that now to like be translated and make a difference instead of just go into an academic journal and sit there and be read by other researchers and, hopefully other people as well, but I really want to take it the next step and do some of that work where, you know, we'd create modules for education for coaches and athletes and do work at like the administrative level for collegiate sport. Um, So that's really kind of where I'd like to go next with, with my research. And um, I'm finding that hopefully I can do that in a lot of different places. And kind of having the freedom in a postdoc program is really important to me to have great mentorship and support, but also have um, a mentor who kind of lets me take my own direction, um, like my PhD advisor did, and just Mm kind of support me along the way. Mm -hmm. And what does that field look like now in terms of like implementation for that kind of work? Do, Do we see that happening? Uh, Not so much, not for like my specific area of research. And I think part of that, and part of that, I think rightfully so is that there's, there's still so much kind of pilot work and like this baseline level research to be done still. And so I think, um, but I also see value in kind of early translation. And then as we learn more, instead of just waiting for 10 years and forming this huge body of literature, um, not waiting till then to start like doing the work on the ground because there are athletes now that need, need support and need kind of changes to be made for their health. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's not that much, not specific to female athlete health in terms of disordered eating and how that affects kind of other health outcomes. Yeah. And let's step back a little bit for those that might not remember or haven't listened to the first episode in a long time or want to know right now versus going back and listening and coming back to this episode like what exactly has your research been around female athletes and what is like the big things that are coming out with their you know disordered eating and mental health and physical health yeah yeah so um i can step back and talk about disordered eating and the female athlete triad that's kind of the Mm -hmm. the basis of my research so Um, The female athlete triad is a model of three health outcomes that was first published in the 1990s. 
And mm -hmm. so that included low energy availability, which is often occurs with disordered eating. So just not enough calories being taken in um, with respect to how much energy expenditure is happening through exercise. So in an athlete who's training maybe one to two, three hours a day. And then the other two components of that triad are um, menstrual disturbance. So a lot of women will lose their period. Um, and that is an outcome of that low energy state. And then the third component is um, low bone mineral density. So after, after an amount of time in that low energy state where the body is essentially starving in some aspects, um, women's bone mineral density will decrease. And so then injury rates increase. And that's so important because bone mineral density, it's not really something you can grow back. So women can have um, really negative impacts on their bone health starting at age 15, 16, 17 years old. And then that will have negative impacts across the rest of their lifespan. And so that's kind of the basis of my work. And then trying to understand what are the risk factors for disordered eating and that low energy availability state? Because that's the state of um, that occurs within the body that creates really high risk for other physiological health outcomes. And so why is that happening? Why are women in this chronic state of low energy availability? That's mm -hmm. what the first chunk of my dissertation really tried to aim, um, aim and look at, excuse me. Um, and then the next part of my dissertation was looking at some other additional health consequences of that low energy state. So beyond mm -hmm. the female athlete triad, moving into a newer model that expanded on the triad called the relative energy deficiency and sport framework. So it expanded mm -hmm. on the triad to look at 10, 10 total health outcomes that um, could be traced back to that state of low energy availability. So some of those other consequences included cardiovascular health risk, um, metabolic health risk, um, among eight others. So um, that's kind of, that's what my dissertation work is all about and kind of what really gets me excited in terms of research. Mm -hmm. it's, I feel like it, it's interesting because so much of, at least in my, like when I think back of like me being in like high school and middle school, I think about how you know, when you're like being really intensely athletic or like if you're on like soccer teams or if you're doing track and field or cross, cross country, these are the sports I did. So those are my examples. Yeah. But everyone was like, you know, they push you really hard and they are like, yeah, you can do so much. You can like be part of like all state or regional. You can do all these like competitions. And then you're like pushed really hard to do all of these things. But it's seen in a way where it's so promoting like oh, it's healthy for you. It's good to be active. It's not like, you know, it's better to do this than be sedentary, but um, like at what point or where is that like tipping point that it's like no longer healthy and it becomes bad and potentially harmful? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that rhetoric, right? It's still, that's so common among not just women, but I think it's often promoted kind of in those messages are marketed to women that kind of the more exercise you do, the health, quote unquote healthier you eat um, just makes you a healthier person. But there is that tipping point at which healthy becomes unhealthy, both um, physically and psychologically. And so I think I would hope that my research is, you know, generalizable to more than just the highly competitive college athlete, but also mm -hmm. just like the casual exerciser or runner or you know anyone competing in recreational sports 
because we're all kind of pushed that same mindset of do more, rest less, that equation, if it's not balanced out properly, can really kind of result in more harm, especially with um, injury risk, um, as well as, you know, once we kind of start to ruin, in a sense of the word, our relationship with food and our relationship with our bodies, that Mm -hmm. I'm very hard to repair. Um, and so I'm always very interested in kind of trying to reframe those messages and kind of tear down that rhetoric of, you know, what's known as like diet culture and, and fitspo mm-hmm. culture and um, kind of take it a step back and like try to look at it more rationally. And because so many of the messages that we see on social media all day long, especially on Instagram, are really just like not not healthful behaviors if they're taken to the extreme. And so, especially in very like type A perfectionist populations, those messages are not, you know, taken lightly. And so that's when it can really become um, an issue, in my opinion, is is when those messages are received by people who tend to do things at 100%. Um, mm. And that's when healthy can become unhealthy. Yeah. I think about like what I see on Instagram all the time, and it's always, it's always like, here, do this exercise regimen here, get my cookbook, get my meal plans, get my this, do this. And there's so much more of it during COVID, right? Like you see it a lot more because every person is showing you their at home fitness, their at home meal planning, prepping, like all of these things that they're doing to try to stay healthy. And I feel like it's so hard to even get myself motivated to do anything sometimes during all of this, because we're just, you know, casually living during a pandemic and just expected to go with our lives. Um, But then we do see so much of the, like, do this, be this. And like, those people's lives seem to have not changed at all. Or they seem to be somehow more fit, which like, I am so confused. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I I think especially the first maybe like three to five months of of COVID and lockdown, there was so much content around like lockdown weight loss and like transform your body before COVID's over and um, mm-hmm. all these at home fitness plans. And like, don't get me wrong, I'm all about like movement. I would have gone crazy during COVID if I didn't. Um, maintain some type of like movement in my life, but just kind of the framing and rhetoric around, you know, use this time that you have to like change your body, use this like extra time in your day to like, you know, eat healthier, which sure, that is all great to a degree, but when it's taken kind of to the extreme and it's, it's getting in the way of like your regular life and limiting you from participating in kind of activities that you usually would participate in because you're so caught up on um, your eating and exercise routine. That's really when diet culture goes too far. Um, mm-hmm. And again, like, you know, we've been saying when healthy becomes unhealthy is when it's getting in the way of your, your normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, my next thought is like so vastly different from what we were just talking yeah. about. Um, it kind of goes more back towards the like power athletes. Um, you know, I just recently read that the Olympics are getting delayed again. Right. And I've been thinking a lot about like, what do Olympians do? Like, what do these athletes do? Right. Cause so much of their life is like, I I guess essentially existing on that tipping point, right. Of like working so hard and Mm -hmm. you all, you, you hear a lot about Olympians having 
pro- like some issues and personal issues, physical, mental, psychological issues because of how hard they've trained. But I'm yeah. like, I wonder, I know this is like, you know, totally like whatever we think kind of thing maybe going on. But I wonder, like, do you have, do you have any thoughts or like what might be going on in a lot of those minds um, from having worked with athletes? Like what possibly, I, yeah, I don't even know how to frame this question, but it's something I yeah. think about like every now and then, like what, how do they exist? Or like, what are, you know, athletes that are like professional athletes doing or like, how are they existing in this time? Yeah. You mean specifically during COVID? Yeah. During COVID, like especially, right. But um, because so much you can't do. So I, yeah, I know, I know that like, obviously I'm sure you don't like, you know, the research that you did, you, um, you worked with certain athletes during a time that was more like able to actually compete, but yeah. 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 I think, um, yeah, I can't imagine kind of, especially Olympic athletes who, right. They've essentially plan the last four years of their life, if not more around the timing of the Olympics that were supposed to be this past summer. And so that, you know, their whole past several years have been calculated to have them at peak performance during that month of the Olympics. Right. And so I can't Mm -hmm. imagine what it was like to be in their shoes and have kind of, you know, what may have been the biggest event of their life taken away. I, I've heard anecdotally, I don't, I haven't seen specific numbers come out on it, but anecdotally, I've heard that among competitive athletes, eating disorder rates are increasing because they're, and this is not specific to Olympic athletes, but just athletes in general, because mm-hmm. they're um, normal kind of competitive seasons and training regimens are no longer there. And so I think that is increasing very type A perfectionist athletes sense of needing to have control over something because their seasons and their races and their competitions have been taken away. So they're, they're grasping on for control and that's coming in the form of controlling their food intake. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there's also fear that training less and not having that structured training environment could, you know, could cause them to gain weight or their bodies could change in a specific way. And I think that has, really negatively impacted a lot of athletes who may have already kind of been on the edge of that disordered eating body image disturbance kind of area. Um, Now without their, their normal routine and environment um, looking to control kind of their life in in a way, in any way that they can. And unfortunately food is a very easy way to um, try to gain control in your life. Of course that comes back to bite you often Mm -hmm. um, and physically and psychologically they're going to have some negative outcomes related to that but kind of psychologically it makes sense in that state to respond in that way so Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in seeing some studies come out probably in the near future if not already in the review process of Mm -hmm. um, disordered eating rates having increased um, in the last eight or nine months and then you know the implications on that for injury rates in the next kind of year or so. Um, Cause it's well known that disordered eating, you know, increases injury risk, not only for bone injuries, but also um, tendon and ligament injuries. So mm. I think it could be, could be quite problematic and um, we might see some issues with injury in the next year as, you know, teams start to compete again or 
and yeah. the race again, um, having yeah. had put their body through maybe, you know, months of um, that low energy state or disordered eating that mm-hmm. is going to help them physically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what that's going to be like, because I can even just remember when um, the NBA decided to do the bubble of the like basketball and uh, like at the very beginning like every single team had like half the team got injured like immediately um and like everyone was out there like everyone's just injured and it's like well yeah no one's in training because they didn't think this was going to happen and then they decided to do the bubble thing where everyone like lived down in orlando um and everyone was injured in those i mean I, i obviously don't know but i imagine that like or from what I gather I feel like most uh basketball players don't have as much disordered eating I honestly I don't know that for sure but it seems that way to me um yeah yeah I've never I've never seen a paper say or I've never seen research say that basketball players were at an increased risk of disordered yeah um yeah it's 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 typically more of those like lean sport athletes or kind of Mm -hmm. like weight and aesthetic sport athletes um and definitely men can fall into high eating sort of risk as well but you know from what we know women are at a much a much more increased um risk mm-hmm. kind of broadly but yeah. yeah and so this might fall into like maybe slightly outside of your research but maybe not um what do you think is a like good starting point or way like if you catch yourself at that tipping point where you or you start to notice like it's your actions are like bordering disorder versus normal like what are things that you could do to help combat that or to like take a step back but you know because I did I know it's like probably definitely hard for athletes to compete with whatever narratives going on in their minds or coaches external pressures yeah yeah I think that's that's a tough question for for multiple reasons I think kind of for athletes specifically that disordered eating and kind of like over exercise state of being is just so normalized and it's like almost expected in a really messed Mm -hmm. up way and often I think what kind of prolongs these these states of disordered eating and um, overtraining is the praise that athletes receive for doing it. So say you're like with your teammates and you just had a really tough workout, but you order a salad instead of pasta. Right. And you know, the rhetoric could be that your teammates are like, Oh my gosh, you're so good. Like how I wish I could be like you. I wish I could eat so clean, so healthy when really like that woman is not eating enough calories to like, make up for and like fuel her body from the amount of calories she just expended through training. So Mm -hmm. that happened a lot when I was an athlete and I saw that happen a lot. Um, kind of even after I was an athlete, just the, you know, that those conversations among women can kind of really hurt other people and prolong kind of that state because they're getting positive feedback for um, their behaviors. And so I think there's a lot of denial in that. It can take somebody a long time to really recognize that what they're doing may actually not be healthy, even though everything in their environment is telling them that they are super healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe like your question, once the point, once they reach a point where maybe they're so chronically fatigued all the time, they feel awful. They're losing their mental period. They're losing hair. They're, they're unable to engage in social life normally because they're avoiding food and they're Mm -hmm. 
so tired that they cannot socialize or have a normal dating life. Um, I think at that point, if somebody recognizes that they're not okay, it can take an, it can take a long time to even ask for help. But then, you know, there's, I'm always going to advocate for um, therapy and seeing a registered dietitian. But I know when I say that, that those resources are not as available as they should be. And yeah. when they are available, they can be very expensive. So I just have to own that. You know, I want to say, oh, therapy and see a registered dietitian who's trained in eating disorders treatment. But I know it's not that easy all the time, um, mm-hmm. especially for young people who may still be on their parents' insurance um, and don't want their parents to know, um, which we need to work to decrease stigma around um, mental health services, but also for people who have private insurance, but the copays are still quite high. So um, I think, you know, this conversation's for a different podcast, but this is why yeah. we need universal healthcare and universal yeah. <laughs> um, uh, behavioral care services so people can seek treatment early and often instead of waiting till things get too severe. So I think that's, you know, a huge component of, right, mental health care in our country and just healthcare in general is increasing availability and decreasing stigma for use. And that would make a world of difference. But for now, it's trying to find, you know, the resources that are within your capabilities and within your kind of your financial, you know, abilities to, to find services. But um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not easy. And we really need to do better for, for people who need treatment. Mm-hmm. And what if you were like a friend of someone and you saw them going through this, like what could you do as that person to be supportive, especially since, you know, the like therapy and finding a registered dietitian is not always accessible. Maybe you have friends that could be like a helpful support, but it's difficult to have those conversations and you want to make sure that you're not using triggering language or anything, right? So what, like, what are ways that like a friend could be there? Yeah, no, that's, that's such an important question. And it's a tough one because, you know, we're not, we don't grow up in an educational system that really teaches us how to talk about mental health and eating Mm -hmm. mental health related issue, right? It's not, I think, I think that's such an important component too, is to understand it's not so simple as to like, just eat more or like, just eat eat breakfast or just add carbs. It's so much more complex because it is a logical disorder. And so, you know, I wish we all had education on how to talk about these topics in school growing up, but I think as a friend or a family member, I've mentioned this before, maybe on the podcast last time or, or maybe a different podcast, but my brother was that person for me, my older brother that was able to have to kind of talk to me and like help me see that, oh yeah, I haven't mentioned it on this podcast, but I have a history of disordered eating. And he was able mm-hmm. to help see that, you know, the way I was eating and exercising wasn't actually healthy when I thought it was very healthy and normal. Um, but he did that by slowly, like starting to just point things out to me um, and suggest that maybe I try, mm-hmm. try to do things in a different way. Maybe I try to, you know, add more of this, eat more of this. And I think when he saw the way that I reacted, so with so much anxiety to that, he really became like a very good listener. So I think prompting the topic of, hey, I'm worried about you. Hey, I'm concerned and I love you. I'm concerned and I'm here for you. I'm concerned and I'm here to listen if you want to talk about it. 
it's really just kind of like raising the awareness because I think from there it can create a domino effect in the person who's struggling. The more they hear, hey, I'm concerned, hey, I'm a little bit worried, every time it's going to increase their awareness of their own behaviors and their state of mind around food. And I think it really takes time. It's not like usually an overnight moment of, oh, wow, like I need help today. It's, yeah. it, could be, it could be years, which I think is really tough as the friend or like family member of somebody who's struggling. But, and you know, I'm a bit biased because that was my experience with finally coming to terms with needing help. But I think patience and like love and just, and just reiterating that you're raising this, raising this question to them and this topic to them because you genuinely care about them. Um, but know that you can't fix them and know that you can't change it for them. Um, I think is the most important point. Hmm. Yeah. It's so complicated. <laughs> it's tough. It's super tough. Yeah. Yeah. And as the friend or family member, knowing that, well, most of them, maybe some are, but knowing that you're not often trained to be the one to like facilitate their treatment and like behavior change. So mm -hmm. kind of knowing that only that trying to just guide them towards their own understanding of kind of the harm that's happening to them. And then once they reach a point, hope, hope that they will kind of come to terms with needing to seek additional help. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's super tough. Yeah. I feel like I feel like I should have asked this at the beginning, but yeah, Su Susanna is better at making a outline that makes sense. But I, I didn't ask because we've talked before. But how did you get into your research topic? Because now you've like slowly weaved it in a little bit throughout oh, your answers yeah. to other things, but we didn't actually address it because I I know you, so I'm I know. just yeah. like ah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, it's like a choose your own adventure. Um, yeah. So I got into my research topic because um, it was very personal to me. So I, 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 like, I never intended to like go to grad school or do research as a career. Um, I studied sports management in undergrad and wanted to like work in sports and like be an athletic director or something like that. And then when I went through my own experience with kind of all these topics we're talking about, disordered eating, female athlete triad, um, losing my period for like nine years, having kind of to go through that experience and like not have a lot of resources available to me, not have a lot of information on how to navigate kind of what I needed to do for my body to recover and, and seek treatment. And so I started my master of public health degree with not with the intention of studying female athletes and taking this path, but once I got into the program and started to really work through my own recovery with my disordered eating and kind of exercise addiction, I realized how many other people were going through the very same thing that I was going through and how few resources were available to us and how kind of isolating it felt to go through that and figuring out that I could be somebody who like helps to kind of increase the conversation around female athlete health and disordered eating mm -hmm. and then eventually, you know, wanted to start contributing research to that area. So that's when I really decided during my master, master of public health that I wanted to pursue a PhD to really do that research work. And I fell into epidemiology really because I saw the value in gaining those kind of 
the hard skills that you get in an epidemiology program, the data analysis skills, the study design skills, um, because I really wanted to start kind of designing my own studies and collecting data um, and really just kind of like fell into that field. I never saw myself as a scientist or, mm-hmm. you know, growing up, I never wanted to be that, but it really kind of just like unfolded when I started my MPH. Um, and now I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> That's so weird. Now you're a doctor. Um, I think crazy. it's, yeah. What I think is so interesting is that you used epidemiology as your base to do this, like, you know, yeah. as you mentioned earlier, when now people, more people know what epidemiology is, but they also now even more associate it with infectious disease. Like that's not even new, but it's extra now. Right. <laughs> so like the work you're doing is so different and from that, but it's interesting that you get to use epidemiology as a base. Um, how, like, I, I know you mentioned like the reasons that you were drawn towards epidemiology, but like, how did you find even a program or something that allowed you to marry those two things? Because they're so, that's not common, right? Yeah, honestly, great question. <laughs> it's been, well, it's just, it's been very interesting and it's never been a negative thing. I just think sometimes I feel like the black sheep mm-hmm. in kind of the world of epi because I don't quite fit into epidemiology I just really wanted epidemiology skills that you take away like the hard skills you get in that type of program um but it was challenging because a lot of disordered eating and eating disorder research falls in psychology programs but Mm I I didn't quite want to be a psychologist I really wanted to be in public health because I'm interested in prevention instead of treatment whereas most psychology programs are not all of them but most would tend to be more on the treatment of eating disorder side Mm -hmm. um and within public health, there's not a lot of people who study eating disorders prevention. Um, yeah. And so at Michigan, I think I said, right, I'm at the University of Michigan still and yeah. did almost full here, but um, Kendra Sonneville is an eating disorders prevention researcher in the nutrition department at Michigan Public Health. And so during my master's, I was introduced to her and her work and kind of like her public health angle on eating disorders and disordered eating. Mm-hmm. And so that just really resonated with me. So I knew I wanted to stay in public health, didn't quite fit in nutrition, didn't want to be a nutritionist, didn't want to be a psychologist, wanted to be an epidemiologist that studied female athlete health. And there aren't very many people in that specific niche area. So I found my PhD mentor was amazing. She studies women's health kind of more broadly, um, but was very like supportive and open to mentoring me and kind of guiding me through like the research process that I wanted to take on, although she didn't have a specialty in kind of young women's health or, um, you know, specifically among athletes with disordered eating, but it ended up being an amazing fit. And then I was really able to shape um, a dissertation committee of mentors from different departments in the university to kind of, kind of fully form the kind of support and mentorship I needed to kind of complete my research questions and, um, carry out my dissertation work mm-hmm. but that's, yeah so that's awesome that you were able to find all the people that made it possible in you know in one university like in one setting yeah yeah I mean very biased but Michigan is a great place to yeah. be for- <laughs> we have yeah we have so many amazing researchers here it was really fun to work with people from kinesiology and sports sciences and yeah. uh, all over the campus and 
it kind of gave me that well-rounded, I'd like to think, hopefully well-rounded training that I can take to, you know, wherever I end up next. And kind of mm-hmm. on that same point, finding the right postdoc fit has been kind of a, a bit challenging in other ways because of, you know, my my degree being epidemiology, but the research work I want to do tends to still be housed under like psychology. Um, mm-hmm. And also there's just more funding for eating disorders work in psychology versus public health. And so trying to kind of weave the narrative correctly of why I would fit in those postdoc programs. Um, And although my approach to the science may be a bit different, that hopefully I could, you know, add positive new skills and new perspectives to kind of a more psychology focused group. So that's been, that's been a real learning process. um, And a bit challenging to navigate, to be honest, but um, I, I'm really hopeful that I'll end up where I'm supposed to be. And yeah, but yeah, it's been exciting and very stressful, but exciting. Yeah. I, I believe that you will end up in the right spot. And everything you just said with the like, you know, having all those opportunities and the way of being able to weave all of these different, you know, expertise together, I feel like is also being shown a lot during COVID in particular with the vaccine, uh, you know, development and just the ability of like knocking down these silos and making it so all these disciplines can work together. And like, you're the perfect example of you weave together all of these things in such a logical way that can create something and really work towards, you know, implementation of findings and like bettering people's health, like particularly you know, female athletes, I think that it's super exciting. And I'm super excited for you <laughs> to move forward with it. Yeah. Can I bring you to my next interview? <laughs> <laughs> like, hi, I'm Tracy, you- hype woman. Um, <laughs> Can I just take that audio clip and just play it in the background <laughs> of my next interview? Oh, I'm sorry, I need to shut this off. <laughs> we just it for a second. <laughs> but it's, it's so true. Like, it's just, it's hard. It's hard to like break through because for so long, public health has existed, like all health existed in like such a siloed way where no one was talking to each other. We see it also in the issue of we need Medicare for all, yeah. <laughs> like, um, but in the same, same kind of bucketed issue where like, you know, even when you're trying to get healthcare, no one talks to each other. So you have to get the same test 5 million times because yeah. nothing is shared. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, there's so many issues with, with that. But. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's super exciting. Um, I think we're coming up on the end of the podcast. Um, so I just wanted to ask, what can people do to maintain healthy movement? Or what is some advice on like healthy movement and activity, especially during these times when we're, you know, still at home a year later? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, and I think, What's been so important is right incorporating healthy movement in our days, but thinking about it as like, this is for mental health maintenance. This is like a joyful, exciting part of my day is to move my body. And if we're thinking about, you know, kind of longevity in this like lockdown period, you know, mental health is so important. And if, if movement is part of that for you, I think it can be a huge positive if you have a complicated relationship with exercise. Um, maybe you do other things to kind of maintain your mental health, whether that's meditating, not to be like cheesy, but meditating could be an option. Mm-hmm. Reading, um, you know, other things. I don't think anybody 
has to has to force movement but um I know for me even just like walking in the cold right now is really kind of like invigorating <laughs> um mm-hmm. when I'm sitting at my desk all day working in my apartment for the ninth month in a row or whatever it's just those little moments in the day and stretching going outside taking my dog out on a walk I think are important so important now maybe more than ever because we're not having those those natural times in our day where we're kind of commuting back and forth and moving so um seeing them as like joyful happy moments mm-hmm. um, whenever we can incorporate cool yeah that makes sense thank you thank you so much for chatting with us again i'm so excited for you and the future of all of the work that you're going to do yeah so quickly to end the episode um Thank you so much, Tracy, for talking with us. And as a reminder, you can reach her at on Instagram at Tracy underscore Carson, T-R-A-C-I. And if you have any questions for us, you can email us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or check us out on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. And thank you to all of our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Hot Coco for producing our music. Thanks for listening.